All right, from Salt Lake City, this is Heart of the Matter. It's the week before the Christmas Holy Day. My good friend reminded me today something I hadn't thought about is that Christmas is really not much different than Halloween, you know? It's just really pretty much the same thing. And he's a good Christian and, and everything, but in the Christian world, you know, Christmas is everything, but it really is as pagan as Halloween. All right, am I saying Halloween? Halloween, uh, where we do all we can to worship God in spirit and truth. I'm your host, Sean McCraney. How about a prayer? I need it. Lord, we uh, come to you. We're seeking for truth. We want to know what you have to say about these topics, and we pray that you will just uh, be with us as we consider the things that we're going to discuss tonight. Be with our, our staff and volunteers and everybody involved. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, as an FYI, next week we're going to have an HOTM McCraney family Christmas. It's going to be my daughters, their two husbands, a, uh, another young man, and uh, Mary and I and my grandson sitting around and uh, just having some kind of whatever it will be. If you don't have anything to do, join us that Christmas night. It's a Tuesday night, 8 p.m. Mountain Time, and uh, no big deal, but we want to invite you into our lives for a minute and see how to talk with people who are in different places in the faith. My, uh, uh, my sons-in-laws and uh, the visiting guests, they all think different things, and so we'll just see how that works out. Last week, I got an unsolicited call from this number, and I just want to share with you what it... There is a woman that you must bind that has been trying to come up against you. Press the numerical button one. You must do this today. This is why you've been feeling uneasy about this. Press the numerical button one now. Press one. If you wish to no longer receive these messages, please hit the option. <laughs> the person really wanted me to press one for some reason, but they used the devil and this evil darkness and... Uh, Interestingly enough, this call and its dark warnings kind of play into the last part of our three stances that we've introduced over the past couple of weeks. So here we are, part three, the final simple survey through the ways and means of orthodoxy, Protestantism, and what I've called restorationism writ large. And we're doing it because these three stances represent pretty much the bulk of Christianity around the world today. It's really amazing. These three stances, very big, top, broad topics. Um, listen to the numbers. Roman Catholicism, 1.3 billion people, Roman Catholic around the world. Eastern Orthodoxy, and that includes a lot of different orthodoxies, not just uh, Greek and Ro uh, Russian, but a lot of different ones. 16 million. Protestantism. Combined, all Protestants, uh, and there's a lot of variations, 950 million. And the Restorationists combined total about 40 million. So that's well over, it's like 2.2 billion people, all of them believing that their way is the best or the right way. And why has God allowed this to happen in the name of His Son? When you think about it, so many maintain that theirs is the way. I mean, I, 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 it's really fascinating. I watched some dear friends go from one stance to another stance. And when they go to the other stance, they become as 
ardent, as zealous, as, offen as offensive, as dogmatic as they were in the stance before. And it's just amazing how love goes out the window when righteousness and zealotry and this certain worldview is the best steps in. It, 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 it just puts blinders on people. It covers their heart and it makes them a creature. They become like a member of a certain species of animal. It's like the lion thinks the lions are the, the best of all the animals. And the elephant thinks they're the best of all the animals. Whatever animal you become in the religious world, it's the same thing. There is a way around this. There is a way. I'm not just beating something I've created. I haven't created it. It's right there in scripture. It's described in the history of the faith. And we're going to talk about it tonight before we wrap it up. But let's start off by talking about, we, t we started off talking about the authority that these churches maintain that they had. This authority. And then more importantly, we showed what they have done with the apparent authority that they say they have. That with this apostolic authority or with this authority from God in his scripture, all these claims on authority... We look at what they've done, right? And, and they've done some really strange things in the name of God and having his apostolic authority. So now listen, please, and I know you know this, but I personally don't care at all what path people choose to take in their walk with God through Christ. I, I will love you as a brother or a sister, whatever path you have, and, and I really don't care. And the reason I don't care is because I don't think God cares. I don't think he says, are you Greek Orthodox? Are you Roman Catholic? Are you Baptist? Are you Pentecostal? Are you Mormon? I don't think God's about it. I really don't. Looking at the broad spectrum, I think he's just looking at the heart, man. I really do. And uh, it, within every one of those walks, there's people whose hearts are right. And it doesn't mean their lives are right. It just means their hearts are right. And in every one of those walks, there's people whose lives are right, but their hearts are all messed up. So he knew what men would do with the faith, obviously. And he knows that there's a lot of deep, heartfelt devotion for him in all these different approaches. Every one of them. So please don't get this wrong about me that I'm picking on the person when I go after these things. I'm honestly committed to the idea that there's a ton of fantastic, wonderful Christians who frequent these broad approaches and others. Some of them are dear friends, and uh, their approach to the faith has not hindered them at all in their loving, sacrificial attitude. Uh, the point and purpose of this examination is for seekers who don't want a substandard approach to the faith, who don't want to be captured by the ideas of men and women, for seekers to hear an approach without any sort of obfuscation. So that's what heart of the matter is all about, obviously, if you haven't noticed that. Getting to the root, the heart of a subject. Figuring out what is at the bottom line of the thing. And no holds, no blows, no kicks barred. Go after it, right? So while I respect whatever people want to believe and do relative to the faith, really, because we all do different things, 
it's truly a source of humor for me. I, I, I'm sorry, and I don't mean this to offend you, but it's really hilarious when someone thinks that their specific religious system, um, in the face of the thousands of other systems out there uh, supporting salvation by and through Jesus, that theirs is the best, that theirs is unassailable, and that they and they alone have landed in the place of absolute truth in this little corner of a very big plane of many people who have truth. It's just really comical. And, and what's comical is that the people, the zealots, don't see this about themselves. They really don't. They really honestly believe that they are without guile and that they have such pure truth and that the things they say should just not even be questioned. You know, look, at, look stare in the eyes of any Mormon, devout Mormon. Stare in the eyes of any religionist who's devout to their cause. And you see the, the blinders uh, right there. So then we went to evangelicalism after we talked about, you know, Roman Catholicism and orthodoxy. And um, people land wherever they're going to land. We've talked about that. But in the end, none of them are right, and here's why. Because the Bible plainly tells us that none of them were ever supposed to be right. I'm not right. Campus is not right. We are all ambling forward, right? So men and women are way too fallible and susceptible to corruption. And we are too fearful of change when you got a good thing going. You get something good going in an institution with 100 people, and it's really tough to change direction knowing that it's going to fall apart. So God, he had a solution. And he built it into his scripture. He said, after my son has taken care of everything, I am going to introduce the new heavens, the new earth, the new Jerusalem, the New Testament. And I am going to write my laws on people's minds and hearts, individuals' minds and hearts, not on plates of stone, not in books of, of policy. I'm going to write on their hearts, and they will be my people, and I will be their God. That's how he says it would work. And so we know that is his system, right? So if you don't believe me, read Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34. He says it right there. This is my new covenant that I will do in that day. So that's how it's been since Jesus wrapped up that former age of religion once and for all by coming and rescuing his small, manageable church, which was still tough to do with his apostles. And they barely made it through. So he managed them and he came and took his bride as promised and that wrapped that age up and fulfilled everything. Last week, I shared some quotes on his coming as having happened from the Patristic Fathers all the way down to R.C. Sproul. Tonight, before we address the final topic of the three major stances, I want to give you a quick summation of what Jesus and his apostles and a couple places in the scriptures said about his coming. Now, I've, I've written a short book called It's Not the End of the World, and it's available for you for free to download on our site, hotm.tv. You go, scroll down, you'll see it's not the end of the world. Click on it, and you can download that for free. And it will give you a ton of answers to the questions everybody throws up about the end times. So 
if you want the truth about the second coming of Jesus, was there one? Yes, there was. Um, consider its contents, test, challenge every word, but at least investigate before you go hook, line, and sinker into something that's been taught to you. So let me give you a few irrefutable passages to consider from the text. And they're irrefutable because you have to say that what was said doesn't mean what was said. Now, they accuse, uh, uh, they accuse what are called preterists of doing that all the time. They say, oh, you got to spiritualize the text. Not really. I really, I'm not a preterist. I don't even know everything that preterists believe. I just believe that Jesus came and everything's fulfilled. Now, if that's a preterist, fine. But I don't believe in preterist doctrine. I don't even know it. But let's start with Jesus standing before Caiaphas at his trial, right? Or before his trial. Caiaphas says, are you the son of God? And this is what Jesus says. You've said I am. Nevertheless, I say unto you, hereafter shall you see the son of man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. He said it to them then. You will see. Okay. Now, Jesus was wrong or Jesus was right. Did when he said, you will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of heaven, does it not mean that? I think it means that. And I trust it. In his instructions to his apostles uh, to go out and preach, right? He says in Mark 10, 23, but verily I say to you, truly I'm telling you, you will not have gone over to the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. Did you know he said that? He tells them, go out as far as you can to Israel, but let me tell you something. You're not going to get to all the cities before I come back. That tells you right there. You can't get around that. All right? In Matthew 16, 28, Jesus said this to people standing right there. Verily I say unto you, when he says that, that means this is really true. There are some standing here which shall not experience death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. You can reinterpret that any way you want, but for the Son of Man to come in his kingdom, he was coming back. That's what it meant. He says, there's some here that will not taste death. Now, the futurists, the dispensationalists, and all the others, they twist that up all over the place because it can't mean what it says it means. One more. In Jesus' day, and you've heard this, a generation was roughly 40 years. Prior to Jesus' day, it was longer, uh, but it, by the time Jesus was walking the earth and for several hundred years before, a generation was about 40 years in biblical language. Any scholar, no matter how they view Scripture, no matter what denomination, know that the Bible talks about 40 years as a generation, around. And he goes onto the Mount of Olives and he's talking with his disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and they say, Lord, you've said the temple's going to come down, not one stone will stand upon it. You've said the Pharisees are going to get thrown in Gehenna. When is all this stuff going to happen? What's the sign of your coming? And when's the end of this age? King James says world, doesn't mean world. When's the end of this age, right? And he tells them, this is what, the, here's your answer. This is the sign of my coming. This is what things will look like. This is when all these things will happen. And he says in verse 34, Truly, again truly, verily, I say unto you, this generation will not pass away 
till all these things take place. Now, C.S. Lewis said that in the world of scholars, that's the most embarrassing passage we've got. R.C. Sproul said, perhaps our forefathers of the faith have made a mistake in understanding what Jesus was saying because you can't get around this and Jesus wasn't wrong. The, um, the scholars know what Jesus said there he meant. What was 40 years a generation from the time that Jesus said that? About A.D. 70, when all those things came down upon their head. Look at People want to say these words of Jesus aren't correct. He wasn't right. He didn't know or were misinterpreting. I think what he said is understandable. It's clear. He meant what he said, and it's all true. We spent nearly two years in the book of Revelation. We tried to consider that book from not really completely because it's too big of a task, but to understand it from the idealist, the futurist, the preterist and the historicist views. I didn't do it exhaustively. I started leaning all toward the preterist at the end because it was so apparent to me. But at the end of the day, I'm going to bring it down to a couple passages. You tell me, just be honest with yourself, how this happens. The book of Revelation was recorded by John, and the Revelation was written, addressed to the seven actual real churches in Asia Minor that were present at that day full of believers. Actual churches that had believers that were going to get this revelation. Got it? This is what we read to them then and there. Verse 1, the revelation of Jesus Christ which God gave unto him to show unto his servants the things which must shortly come to pass. You're sitting there in a, one of the churches in Asia Minor, the revelation's copied, you get it, and the first verse says, these things must shortly come to pass. In the Greek language, that does not mean a year or two or three later. It doesn't mean 10 years, it certainly doesn't mean 100, and it doesn't mean 2,000. It means shortly come to pass. What's shortly come to pass? The contents of the book of Revelation to the seven churches. How do you get around that, guys? Then you go to verse 3. Blessed is he who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, who reads aloud there in the seven churches. And blessed are those who hear, who want to keep what is written therein, for the time is near. You know what that means? That's like saying, your glasses are near, Sean. They're near. If my glasses were at home right now, I can't say my glasses are near. They're further away. If they were in California, even worse. That is what people are trying to say that means. That's not what it meant. It meant the time was at hand, near, right? The Greek words for shortly and near in these two passages cannot mean anything but very soon, all right? What were the readers of Revelation in the seven churches to think in the face of this? Was John and Jesus and God wrong? We don't understand this. Who knows what that means? No. All right, and then you jump to Revelation reads emphatically about the immediacy of its contents coming. And then you jump to the last chapter. I know I've covered this before. Revelation 22, 6. And he said to me, these things are faithful and true. The Lord God of the holy prophets sent his angel to show unto his servants the things which must be shortly done. Shortly, that word means really shortly. Revelation 22, 7. Behold, 
Jesus says, I come quickly. What were the seven churches supposed to think when they read that? I come quickly. That he wasn't going to show up for 2,000 years and more? Revelation 22.10, he said to me, seal not the sayings of this prophecy of this book. Daniel was told to seal them. He said, don't seal them, for the time is at hand. At hand is near, shortly to come to pass. Revelation 22.12, and behold, Jesus says again, I come quickly, and my reward is with me to give to every man according to his work he shall be. And John ends all of these words in the Revelation to the seven actual churches full of actual people then with Revelation 22.20. He which testified these things said, Surely I come quickly. Amen. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Nearly 2,000 years of church playing have passed. They've passed. We've had politicking. We've had the Crusades. The Crusades, Christians killing people. Killing people. Calvin being behind people being beaten and put to death. The leader, one of the leaders of the Protestant Reformation, Luther, having people put to death. Luther just running amok. You know, we've had icons and burning incense and robes and lofty costumes and rituals and materialism out the nose of a faith that was started by a guy who had no place to rest his head and itinerant preachers who are 12 apostles who left their nets and went around smelly and, and preaching the gospel and John the Baptist not cutting his beard and, and, and living out in the desert and not cutting his hair and, and all of this stuff and look around what we've done with the money that's happened with these, these three major stances. And then there's the allegiance to saints. And there's the, the works righteousness junk. And there's the popes and the priests and the, and the pastors who don't feed the sheep. It's been a clusterfuck, a total clusterfuck from the beginning. Why? Because it was never supposed to be. All that while, God has been calling out those who have the right heart. All the while, he's known that there's people in the Catholic Church and people in the this and that and this and that. And he's just been bringing them out over the centuries, over the decades, bringing them out into heaven to be his, guiding them through all the muck. But the muck has just gotten worse, right? I could spend the next five weeks, at least, proving every one of the apostles who wrote were convinced he was coming back. I'm not going to do it, but I want to read you two passages. You tell me what Peter meant when he said, but the end of all things is at hand. The end of all things is at hand. Be ye therefore sober and watch unto prayer. Do we, did the reader of Peter's epistles trust him? The end of all things is at hand, he said. Now, we know all things couldn't be everything, it couldn't have been the sun, the moon, the stars, the ocean waves. It couldn't have been the end of civilization. The end of all things pertaining to everything necessary to wrap that age up, which would culminate in the coming of Christ. What did John mean when he wrote, Little youths, it is the last hour. And even as you heard that the Antichrist does come, even now Antichrists have become many. Whence we know now that it is the last hour. What did the apostle mean 
we know it is the last hour. What did Peter mean when he said, the end of all things has come? Do you want to know what our scholars today who are futurists say? They really believed it was coming, but they were wrong. No, Peter wasn't wrong. John wasn't wrong. Scripture's not wrong. Jesus wasn't wrong. The end times signs weren't wrong. They were all there. Josephus wasn't wrong. All of them were right, right? The point is, if, or better put, since Jesus and the apostles and the book of Revelation stand correct, as they stand, as they stand, then all of orthodoxy, Protestantism, restorationism, its practices, its preachings, its teachings is dead and done. They are getting in the way of God and his spirit moving through people who he writes his laws in. And this includes, listen now, this includes all the threats and warnings about sin. All of that stuff. The, the focusing on groups that are sinful and and. And then it also means the end of our final topic tonight, the end of Satan and hell. In our first week, we talked about authority. Last week, we talked about sin in these different things. And we're going to wrap it up talking about the end of eternal punishment, the end of hell, the end of Satan. You see, this is the one, two, three game that institutional religions play. Do you get it? Do you see it? Number one. They say, we have the authority. We know how to interpret the scripture and apply it to your lives. Listen to us. Don't be listening to what God has written on your heart. You listen to the authority. So they establish authority, number one. Number two, having the authority, they say, you are a sinner. You have sin in your life. And if you don't do what we say with our authority and live the way we tell you you should, they got bring you to number three. You're going to hell. It's authority, it's sin, it's hell. There you have institutional religion. It's couched and presented some way in that. That system is there one way or another. The Protestants who preach grace, hell they're the worst preachers of hell, the Protestants. You know, they preach grace, but they preach hell triple time what the uh, Catholics and the Orthodox preach. I don't know about the Restorationists as a whole. They often alter hell, but the Protestants are the worst. So isn't that funny? The grace, 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 God loves you as you are. You freaking sinner, you're going to hell. I mean, it's unbelievable how they manipulate it. So there you go. We started off with authority. You establish that. Then you can say, this is sin. You establish that. And they say, and if you don't do this, you're going to hell. So I'm still a full-blown, sold-out, believing Christian. I long to do good. I long to be sanctified by the Spirit in my life continually. But I recognize from the Scriptures that God has had the total and complete victory over all of that stuff through his son. And the world has been reconciled to him through the son's shed blood. And that through that same blood that was shed, all those things that each group focuses on, 
All of them has been put down. It's done. They're over. Satan was a figure. Gone. Hell was a place. Gone. Death was a reality, especially spiritual death. Gone. All of it gone through the victory, true victory of his son. Gone. If you bring them back, you've got your religion. If you get rid of it, you're allowed to live in the New Testament where God writes on the hearts of individuals. But the religions are too terrified of that. They don't believe that God has the capacity to actually govern someone's life by the Spirit without them having an institution they have to uh, be responsible to. You see? In terms of the afterlife, let's talk about the idiocy of the teachings of eternal punishment really quickly relative to the different stances. Roman Catholicism speaks and teaches of a hell. It is eternal. It is suffering. Um, It's painful, and there's no getting out of it. Boom, done. However, the Catholics do mess with the Protestant views of hells a little bit. Uh, This is Pope John uh, Paul II who said, The images of hell that sacred scripture present to us must be correctly interpreted. They show the complete frustration and emptiness of life without God. Rather than a place, hell indicates the state of those who freely and definitely separated themselves from God, the source of all life and joy. This is how the Catechism of the Catholic Church summarizes the truths of the faith on this subject. Quote, To die in mortal sin without repenting and accepting God's merciful love means remaining separated from Him forever by our own free choice. This state of definitive self-exclusion from communion with God and the blessed, meaning Jesus, is called hell. It's not bad. I mean... I appreciate the term self-exclusion there and the idea that uh, we are doing it ourselves. It's not this destination. It's something that the individual chooses and says, I don't want anything to do of their own free will with God. We would say, well, who would do that if they could see God? A lot of beings would. I mean, according to uh, Christian teachings, Satan and his angels were in the presence of God when they rebelled. So I don't think it's so far afield to have a human being saying, yeah, he's light and everything, but I really don't want anything to do with him. And that's kind of the Catholic way. The thing I don't like about the Catholic way is if you don't have their baptism and you don't confess mortal sin, you go to that place indefinitely, and it's a suffering even though it's self-imposed. I have difficulty with that one, but it's pretty, pretty good. I have a much closer affinity to Orthodoxy's view of hell than I do Protestantism or Restorationism. Within uh, orthodoxy, let me read what they say. This is from Father John Romanides in Empirical Dogmatics of the Orthodox Catholic Church, which means not Roman Catholicism, but Eastern or Russian or any of those others. Listen to what they say. This is pretty interesting. The iconography of the second coming of Christ shows what paradise is and what hell is. And then he references a picture and he says, please go and find the icon of the second coming And you will see that around Christ are those who are in paradise. Around Christ are those who are in paradise. They are in a golden light. The light surrounding them is golden. The same golden light as it gets further away from Christ begins to change color. And gradually, the further away it goes, it goes from gold to red. And in the red light are the damned. 
So we have a spectrum of brilliance, of light. The light goes from golden where God is to a hotter, which I don't necessarily uh, like, but to a hotter light where the damned are. The saved see Christ in a golden color. The damned also see Christ from a distance, but they see the light of Christ as red because for the former it is the glory of God and for the latter it is eternal fire, outer darkness, and the consuming fire. Now, I don't agree with that, but I do agree that there is a gradation of light, and I think that scripture can support that from Revelation 21 through 22.6 and how, they, how life looks like from that perspective. Um, they, it, the, it goes on and he says, paradise and hell do not exist from the point of view of God, but from the point of view of human beings. God loves everyone equally. He will send his grace to all. That salvation to the Orthodox is in heaven and hell. That's how they put it. And that's from one of the quotes from this guy I'm talking about. So biblically speaking and looking at the passages that address hell and punishment in the context of the Greek, and then in consideration that God is love and he is good, I'm really more closely aligned with Orthodoxy's view of hell, of it being a personal choice, of being distant from God uh, in his light, and rather than this place that's separated where someone goes for anything that doesn't suit uh, Protestantism and burns there forever and ever. That's the worst views of all, and that's from the Protestant end. The thinking runs into some real trouble from the Protestants when we consider that God is loving. There's a real, 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 real tangible, not going to be accepted anymore problem with Protestant kids, teenagers and younger, when they hear that God is love, he loves everybody, he has omniscience, he has omnipresence, he's omnipotent, he understood everything before he created it, and he created people that he knew they were not going to choose him, and they're burning in hell forever and ever and ever. And we're talking about people who are good citizens, not just the reprobate criminals that you might want to think about. So this is really mindless zealotry that the, uh, it's uncritical, it's uncontextual rendering of the, of the biblical text. Restorationists mess around with hell. The Mormons made everything a heaven, uh, even the guys in the furthest outreach except for outer darkness. They're in a form of heaven, and the restorationists were a little bit more liberal that way, but they often believe in a hell as well. Mormonism talks about hell. Outer darkness is a form of hell, and most of them preach some form of annihilationism where the people who don't meet God's standards are annihilated. They're not literally suffering forever and ever and ever. So, um, what was hell created for really quickly? Would it ever end? Hell was simply the covering place in the Old Testament. Everyone went there. There was a paradise part of it. There was a prison part of it. And Jesus came, and he took the paradise part with him to heaven. And the other part, the prison part, remained in place and is supposed to remain in place until he returns. Okay? What about Satan? Satan's called the accuser of the brethren. Especially he can accuse in the presence of the law. Satan is an Old Testament character, essentially. Still around in the New Testament. Yes, all the way till Jesus' coming. Because Jesus hadn't had the victory over him yet until his return right? Because Satan's given a period of time to do things before his return. 
So Satan is running around doing all his things all the way up till the second coming, right? So now you can see why that second coming is so vital to understanding whether Satan is here now or not. Now, if, you're, if you believe that the second coming happened as I do, and as Scripture says, and as the apostles did, and as Jesus said, if you believe it happened in 70 AD, then you have to believe, according to Scripture, Satan is done for. He's completely over with. There is no more Satan. There's no more hell. There's no holding tank anymore. What happens then at death? People die. They have their second coming with Jesus. They are resurrected immediately and given a body, and it's been going on for 2,000 years, and they enter into a heavenly realm. Some are within the uh, New Jerusalem gates in the city where God and Christ dwell, and the others are outside of it to some extent or another. And that's what Revelation chapter 21 speaks about, that inside are those who are his, outside are those who are unrepentant, so to speak. And those gates are open 24-7 for people to come in and out. That's how it's described. There's no more hell. There's no more Satan. People say, well, how is all this evil stuff going on? We're evil. We don't need some accuser to tell us what to, to do. There was evil. I mean, Eve committed evil before the fall. You know that, don't you? Satan didn't get her to do anything uh, himself. She did it on her own before she fell. She didn't have a sinful nature, so she couldn't have done evil, but she did evil. We have that in our nature. We can concoct as much evil as Satan could. We concoct it on our own, and we're responsible for it. We don't need a Satan for us to be fallen creatures. You know, he's just an imp. Is there still darkness? Of course there is. There's darkness and light. I say all there is now is the absence of God. When you have the absence of God, you've got darkness, and where you have darkness, you have evil. It's bottom line. We don't need the caricature anymore, you know? And, and, but most importantly, the scripture says, that character is gone if Jesus has had the victory. So, finally, what does scripture say? What does it say? And I'm just going to read eight passages. I've read them many times. The people come to campus are sick of these passages. But they're an insight that Paul gives suddenly in the midst of talking about the resurrection. And I repeat them because he lays out for us the whole thing. He's talking about the resurrection, and they didn't really believe that what was happening, or they were curious about it or denying it. And he says, but now Christ is risen from the dead. When he wrote, he was. And has become the first fruits of them that sleep, them that are dead. Ready for this? For since by man came death, what kind of death came by man? Was it just physical death that came by Adam? No, it was physical and spiritual death. God said, the, the day you eat that fruit, you will surely die. He eats the fruit. He didn't die physically for 920 years. How did he die? Spiritually. Adam gave us all forms of death. For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. So we see a solution to the physical death there. For as in Adam all die. How do all die? We die spiritually and we die physically because of Adam. All of us. That's what he says. Even so in Christ shall all be made alive. Keyword in Christ all will be made alive. Made alive how? In Adam we were killed spiritually and physically. In Christ we're made alive spiritually and physically. You think Christ loses somehow 
That Adam's sin was greater than, than Christ's goodness and grace? No. And he tells us right there, as in Adam all die, even so, even so, in Christ shall all be made alive. All will go to that heavenly realm. Some within the New Jerusalem, others outside of it. That's the way it's read. Paul goes, but every man to his order. Christ is the first fruits. Afterward, okay, Christ rose first. He says, afterward, they that are Christ's at his coming. This is when the second part of the resurrection is going to continue on. When? At his coming. Which Jesus and, and Peter and John and all the others said was coming and was going to happen. Which Revelation said was going to happen. Well, Paul says, look at after Christ, uh, uh, when he comes, everyone else a lot, who has died then will be resurrected. And it's going to introduce us into an ongoing resurrection. And then he writes in verse 24. I'm going to just read the verse again. But every man according to his word, Christ at the first fruits, afterward they that are Christ at his coming, then comes the end. This is what Peter was saying. The end of all things is at hand. Paul is saying, this is how the end will come. At Christ's coming, then comes the end, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, is what he says, even the Father, that's who God is in Scripture, by the way, the Father, over and over again, Paul says that. He will deliver it up to the Father when he shall have put down all rule and all authority and all power. He will, at the, when Christ comes, that's the end of that age. Guess what comes with that age? Christ delivers up the kingdom to God his Father. And guess what? He will have put down all rule, all authority, and power. That's Satan. Done. Bye-bye, fathead. You're out of here. Okay? For he must reign... Talking about Christ, till he has put all enemies under his feet. Until he has put them all under his feet. The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. We talk about the second death. We talk about the lake of fire. We talk about going to hell. All that done. Over. He's had the victory. Capital V. The last enemy that will be destroyed, subdued, put under his feet in authority is death. Right? You know why we know this is, we don't know this, why, but you know what happens in the spirit of this? It happens every time there's a funeral. Every time there's a funeral. In our spirit, which God writes on our heart, we gather together and we can be talking about anybody and we say they're with God. We don't care who it is. We say they're with God. While we're alive, we tell people are going to hell. Day in and day out. They're going to hell. You're going to hell. I can't wait. You're going to hell. There's very few people, I mean, Ted Bundy or something like that, we might say, oh, they're in hell. Hitler, the big extremes. But everybody normal person, we don't care what stance they took. When we're at the funeral, our heart tells us they're with God. Why? Because God has had the victory through his son. And when that, is, that victory has been had, we don't need the stances, guys, anymore at all. So the last enemy that destroyed is death. For when he has put everything, for he has put all things under his feet, is what he says. And then he says, and when all things shall be subdued unto him, then shall the Son also himself be subject unto him that put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And I want to propose to you, that's the age we live in now. God is all in all.
He's in all of it. The son has had the victory, taking care of all that stuff that these stances are always pushing on you, taking care of it, done, and now God is all in all. And he is reigning all in all, God, by and through his son, through the spirit, on earth and all people. And he's having victory over individuals. And the stances continue to just get in the way. They continue to keep people back from what God has for them through his son. Folks, two billion plus Christians can come together under the umbrella of his victory. Right now, they can all come together under that umbrella. The text proves it. Jesus and the apostles prove it. God is now all in all. Death, spiritual death, hell, Satan, sin, religious authority, all things of the past Jesus has saved the world from. Over. I suggest that God is calling to everybody of every type, of every walk, of every climb, whoever they are, to come to him by his son. And I suggest some don't know the son, but they're coming to him and they will know the son. And you're now all responsible for how you hear the call and respond to it. He loves you and sends the rain on you and gives you a great life if you never receive him. You can kick him to the curb. He doesn't, he's not gonna, he's not gonna put you in misery or punishment. His son has had the victory. You can live your life the way you want. But those who are his, those who want him, he's calling and they hear his voice. And if you're one of those, break free from these traps of religion, which only keep us at each other's throats, which only keep us thinking that we're superior to other people. And they don't allow us to really love the way that God wants us to. In him, there is consummate freedom, something religions have never given people. They don't give them consummate freedom. That only comes by Christ directly, written on the heart, in the human heart. We're cutting out now. I don't think there's calls. It's a little early. Christmas special next week, Tuesday, 8 o'clock, Mountain Time, here on Heart of the Matter. See you then.